five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We Sex in space. I feel like I don't need to say anything else about this episode. Jokes aside, besides sexual health being an important issue on long-duration space missions in general, one important topic is the question of reproduction in space. We touch upon all of these and more in my conversation with Simon Dubay. He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University on the topic of space sexology. Enjoy. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help, expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, space enthusiasts, welcome back to another episode. Today, we have one of our non-business episodes and it's actually a topic i've been wanting to discuss for a while you may have already seen the headline you probably have already seen the headline of the episode so you know what i'm talking about but i think it's actually a very interesting and a very very important topic in space exploration and my guest is arguably you know one of the experts right now on this topic it's uh, simon dubay welcome simon thank you for having me it's a pleasure so simon why don't you actually briefly introduce yourself and and what you are doing Yes, of course. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. Uh, I'm working with Dr. Justin Garcia and Amanda Geshelman. Uh, I did my PhD at Concordia University in psychology, specializing in human sexuality, and more specifically, uh, the study of uh, sex tech aerobotics, so human-machine erotic interaction. And uh, my work, uh, which started as a side project, which became uh, way too big for a side project now, uh, also explore space sexology, so the study of extraterrestrial intimacy and sexuality outside of our home planet. Uh, my work, uh, I gotta say, is funded by a, the uh, Canadian Institute of Health Research, and uh, I'm really compelled to say that this is not the work of one person, but a whole team uh, here, uh, also the Kinsey, but my close colleagues like Dave Antil, Maria Santaguida, Shana Pandia, Egbert Edelbrock, and Alex Leyendecker. Uh, I'm putting their name out there right from the get-go because I'm speaking for myself today, but the work and what we'll be discussing today is a group effort as well. Noted. And so you started out with the sexology and um, the interaction between humans and machines, then you sort of segued over into space. And just to clarify, with space, is it now is it now mostly human focused or is there still the robot element? And I guess theoretically there could even be an alien element. Yeah, so um, I think you're putting it right. It actually started with machines and human-machine erotic interaction. 
direction. So uh, a few years ago, we started uh, looking at how technology was reshaping human intimacy and sexuality. And uh, while we we were developing the field of aerobotics, um, we were uh, questioning what kind of applications uh, these technology could have in human existence. And obviously, uh, a lot of these technology, whether that's robots, VR, uh, augmented reality, and all the aptic equipment and, and stimuli that goes around with it can be used uh, for people who don't necessarily have access to intimate partners. And they can also be used to connect people at a distance. Uh, so that's pretty good for uh, individuals who are maybe living in isolated, uh, confined environment. And then with everything that was happening in the space sector, uh, one morning, the, the light uh, kind of um, the light bulb just opened and like, what is more isolated and confined than space? Uh, and we started thinking about hmm, maybe some of these technology could be used to uh, improve the health and well-being of astronauts and uh, or even maybe monitor their health. So on long duration mission. So we wrote uh, a little piece uh, called uh, Sex and Space. Could technology meet the need of astronauts for uh, the conversation? Kind of asking this question and starting exploring the, those possibilities. And uh, it didn't take too long before a sex tech company like WeVibe, which is now under uh, the umbrella of Love Honey Group, noticed uh, that and kind of asked us, like, would you be interested in expanding this, this line of thought in a more um, comprehensive report? So, so we did. Uh, but we realized uh, that we were already kind of devising a solution without fully acknowledging the problem and fully studying the larger problem of what do we do with intimacy and sexuality in space. Uh, so we took a step back and um, we, as we realized that there was a lack of research in this area, we decided to write this big position piece, which is at the same time a review, a position piece uh, to, ar to argue for the study of space sexology, but also um, propose a theoretical framework and a start, the start of a roadmap to how can we approach uh, these questions. So now at the end of 2020, uh, one, we published a case for space sexology. And uh, in the meantime, this side project that I mentioned at the beginning became a full axe of research, axis of research for me uh, more plainly over the course of the last three years. So the pieces you've been mentioning, they're, 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 these are basically articles. They are, they are publicly available. We, if so, we'll, we'll link to them in the episode notes for the listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. So there's two pieces that are really accessible to the lay public. They're vulgarization pieces to explain some of the work that we're doing. Uh, one of them is, like I said, sex and space. Could technology meet the need of astronauts? It, it's in the conversation. It's not a peer-reviewed article. It's really uh, um, the conversation and is, is a platform for researchers to convey in an op-ed style um, uh, manuscript, some convey some of the research and important questions to uh, to the public. There's another in the same place where that's called uh, Love and Rockets. Uh, and it's about the, the broader question of how, why we should be uh, tackling human sexuality in space. There's also one uh, called uh, Me Too in Space, which I recommend. Uh, so these three pieces are in the conversation, but the, the big, the case for space sexology is in published in a peer-reviewed journal in the Journal of Sex Research. And there's a one that one that's coming up uh, this week or the next that's been accepted in current sexual health report. It's called Sexual Health in Space, a five-year scoping review. And it's really putting all the pieces together of what where we are right now uh, in this field of research and where we need to go from there in the coming years. Okay. And so we, we, might, as get, we might as well get one question out of the way. So as you mentioned, space, isolated environment, and it's, it's obviously uh, well known that 
that there have been you know, already several astronauts, male and female, who've spent significant time on the International Space Station, like over a year. So to, to your knowledge, or to the best of your knowledge, do, do you think there has been sex in space already? The best of no uh, my knowledge, the official, uh, the official term is that no, there's hasn't been no form of sexual activities on space, whether that's solitary or partnered. Uh, so we're talking about sex, partnered sex or masturbation. Uh, the official word is no, I won't uh, question that until uh, someone speak up. Uh, but what I'll say is that it's definitely possible and sexual responses are not inhibited uh, completely in space. We've seen astronauts who were able to get erection. There's no reason to think that female astronauts uh, cannot get aroused as well during uh, uh, space missions. Uh, well, maybe not during a launch because that's pretty intense, but I mean, during a long stay or any form of habituation, sexual responses doesn't seem to be inhibited, uh, whether that's in zero gravity or uh, reduced uh, gravity. So we'll see in the coming years. But what is really important, I think, when someone brings this question up is it's not because it hasn't happened yet that it's not going to happen in the future. Uh, because right now, as everyone know here, especially those who might be listening to this podcast, we're entering the age, a greater age of space exploration, of space uh, settlements, and the development of permanent space base, but also really importantly, in the development of space tourism. So uh, we're going to have more and more people going into space, some of them not trained astronauts that might be able to withhold abstinence or, or do not want to withhold, keep abstinence for long periods of time. So we might be dealing with more and more people who either want to have sex with themselves, masturbation, or sex with their partners in uh, more or less long duration space flights. And, it, and it's funny you sort of made a distinction between partner sex and masturbation, because that actually would have been my next question, because I know the official line, no partner sex, but I thought, gee, if people are going up there for such a long time, maybe at least they were allowed to take along like sex tech equipment but you're saying the official line on that is is also no yeah i cannot i, I don't want to speculate about, about that i i obviously think it unlikely that uh, nothing like this happened but at the same time i stick to uh the headlines and um there's also another consideration that we need to be very mindful of there's not many people who've been on the international space station there's a quite a bit of, of people but because there are so few um it's important to respect their privacy it's very easy to identify mm -hmm. uh, who's been uh, in, in certain quarters, who's been like on certain missions. And I understand that they might not want to talk about their sexuality or reveal parts of their sexuality. But um, at some point, I think someone will have to acknowledge that maybe among this group of individual, it already happened. We Or it's there's some form of etiquette uh, aboard these living quarters because, yeah, the International Space Station is a big lab. So it's a work environment. So you, uh, you have to abide by work professionalism uh, rules, but it's also a living habit. Habitat. And the International Space Station obviously is just one of the stations that's out there right now, but there'll be more and more, including commercial ones for scientific missions, for pleasure, for leisure. Uh, so at some point, we have to address this problem. Uh, and I, I've kind of said it in multiple podcasts and interviews. If the CSA, if NASA, if ESA, you're listening, I mean, we're sexual, we're sexual creatures, we're sexual uh, beings, and uh, sexuality, including masturbation, is part of an important contributor of our well-being so deal with it <laughs> but, but so just to finish up on sort of that uh, you know official line but as far as i know it, it's also not the case that this is somehow artificially suppressed right it's not like astronauts are being to our knowledge being given any drugs that which would suppress the sex drive because people would be worried about this creating you know 
issues in the interaction in the small confined environment. Yeah, not to not to my knowledge. Uh, obviously, I, I don't think they're suppressing uh, anything. The sexual response and the possibility for masturbation or partner sex, I think, is real. Uh, there, there's no reason to think that that's not possible. For partnered sex in, in low gravity, we might need some form of garments or strap-ons or just like pieces mm. of equipment to keep people close from one another. For masturbation, I mean, um, we might want to be thinking about some hygiene, uh, obviously, uh, not services, but technical components. And I'll throw that out there. Some people make it, I think, more complicated than it is. It could be a sex toy. It could be by hand, but maybe just a condom <laughs> or, or something that, that, that could contain for instance for male uh, sperm you don't want that like you want to keep a viable habitat like that's a practical uh, reality that we need to address uh, for female you also want to have some form of uh, from cleaning equipment as well uh, to even like with general bodily fluids so mm -hmm. It's it, right now. It's more practically the solution are actually yeah. pretty simple, I think. Uh, but uh, the the question uh, is more: How are we going to deal with that with multiple people living in in small quarters and to to infuse like a respectful way of acknowledging everyone's needs, um, their preferences, and acknowledging and be respectful with one another? We kind of need to help astronauts and future space inhabitants to be respectful of one another, develop a proper uh, ethics of sex and communication and ethicate aboard these space habitats. Yeah, so so this is this is a good segue is because I basically now wanted to delve a little bit deeper and actually ask you about, so like what, what are some examples of your specific lines of research that you're pursuing in this, you know, big topic? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, like I said, we had to kind of come back to uh, the basics in the beginning, uh, do our own homework and uh, some reviews and cultural research had already been done from like, at multiple times uh, in history. There was already call for this kind of research 30 years ago and, and more recently by colleagues like Alex Leyen Decker and Shana Pandya. And um, it's not that people have not said this is important um, or not review some of the literature at their time, but it seemed again needed that we need to bring where we were at. So that's what we started by doing a review, a call for research, um, starting to put, um, like I said, a roadmap in place of how can we go about it? Uh, because it's great to say that there's a lack of research. Um, but if you don't tell people, look, you might want to explore these directions and maybe we can have this common language and these concepts and these views of who could be involved in this research. Uh, it seems more like a great idea and an important idea, but at, at some point you need some, some practical uh, components to how can we conduct this actually, this scientific endeavor. So that's where we started. But right now what we're working on is analog missions. So we are really right now in a, a two-stage process of kind of launching analog study. The first one is really uh, empirical papers, retrospective papers of uh, people's sexual health and intimacy in analog context, but thinking about when they were um, uh, in the past in analog missions. So we're going to sample the analog community uh, to, to think about, oh, did you have a partner? Uh, did you experience sexual arousal? Were you attracted to your partners? What were your sexual health using standardized uh, questionnaires? Um, so it's a first base of retrospective uh, sample. That's not perfect because it's not in the moment, but it, usually these kinds of studies are really good to say, look, people are aroused. People sometimes uh, were frustrated sexually. Uh, it affected their mental health and mood. They wish they could have masturbated or they experienced desire towards their colleague. It gives us already an idea that there's something that's going on. And from talking to analog astronauts informally, I can tell you, 
there's some stuff that's going on. Um, the next phase of these questionnaire studies is actually going to be um, with uh, actual analog missions. So there's a few coming up. Well, there's always a few studies going on in the world, but there's also the world biggest analog that's happening in, in maybe 2025, I think, but we need to apply uh, in advance. But regardless of that, in with colleagues like Emilia Polonio at High Seas uh, and our interstellar performance lab uh, company, what we want to do is take measures of their sexual health, subjective and objective, before they get into missions, during missions, and after missions. So we want to know, for example, uh, what's their uh, sexual responses like? What's their the status of their sexual health? Uh, how it relates to their psychological health, uh, their anxiety, depression, stress, before, during, and after an analog. So that's where we're starting. And I think that's a good point because uh, obviously more and more people are getting trained, more and more people, a lot of the science behind space research is done here on Earth. Obviously, it's not all about uh, the International Space Station or, or flights or uh, whatnot. We can do really cool uh, and important research here on Earth in these uh, isolated, confined and extreme environments. So that's where uh, we're starting. Whenever uh, we have good partners, um, with hopefully the, um, the space agencies, we can do more in-depth analysis. Maybe they've already done it uh, and they just keep the, the data uh, for themselves for privacy, again, reason, which I would totally understand. But hopefully we can also do interviews, in-depth interview with astronauts. Uh, we can do uh, similar kind of research with astronauts and the kind of mission that right now NASA is doing, simulation of Mars for a year. Uh, I think uh, these would be really valuable and important data about how sexual health influence mental health and how it influenced then uh, these two uh, mental and sexual health influence crew cohesion, crew performance, and uh, ultimately mission success. I think uh, if you really wanted thinking about an emission kind of state, not just we're living in space, but in really how are we going to settle and settle Mars or do long duration space flight, you need to be thinking uh, about, about these questions. I Like I've said again in many interviews, I'm not worried about um, astronauts lacking hair or food or uh, that a big system will fail and then ultimately it's going to be a catastrophic event because there are so many redundant systems and, and protocols in place. I'm worried about someone snapping. I'm worrying, uh, I'm, I'm really worried about someone uh, being sexually frustrated, someone sexually assaulting someone, gender harassment, uh, someone just missing their partner at home for long periods of time and wanting to express their sexuality in a healthy way. These are the kind of concerns I'm having they're, they're human factors, uh, concerns. Um, I don't know if it's derived from sci-fi or just my psychological training, but again, I'm not worried about the system failing. I'm worrying about the human system <laughs> failing. Yes, yes, the human factor. And there's actually, it's funny you mentioned sci-fi. I was just going to say, I'm totally blanking on the name, but there's a relatively recent sci-fi movie where they're sending a bunch of basically teenage kids basically for settlement to another planet. And they're all on, without knowing, they're all on like sex drive suppressant drugs but then they find out they're on drugs and they stop taking the drugs and it's 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 not pretty let's put it this way um, yeah. but anyway um, I, I, let me ask yeah, that movie that you're talking about uh, obviously is not what's going to happen but i like to i'd like to say that yeah suppress 
what was interesting is that suppressing that part of ourselves is not a viable option. Yes. We should just learn how to integrate it into uh, just a meaningful way and a safe way of going about space exploration. Agreed. So let's flesh out a little bit more some of the sort of uh, research you're you're working on that you've mentioned with the, the analog missions. And um, so right now, is this mostly with the questionnaires and then may, maybe in the future also with observations? Is, is that mostly sort of data collections or do you already have some sort of specific hypotheses in mind you want to investigate? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right now, it is uh, absolutely questionnaire-based. We're in the process of uh, fleshing out the those uh, investigation, having the developing the right partnerships, anticipating the right missions, um, and uh, applying for ethics. Right now, it's a it is a process that takes time, especially because we are com- we're outsiders. We're coming from outside of the space sector, uh, looking in. We are psychologists, sexologists, uh, uh, coming in. Uh, and and doing the, these kinds of research. So we want to establish ourselves and we have been trying to do this the right way. Like here's the literature review, here's the questionnaire studies, here's and the empirical. And we do have some uh, some hypotheses. Um, one of them uh, obviously is at baseline that analog mission will influence uh, sexual responses and sexual health, uh, which will then predict mental health as well. Um, but the, the more precise hypothesis has to do with time, uh, I would say. Um, I think a lot of people are really able to endure uh, long periods of isolated and confined environments without too much uh, impact on the. So when we see, for example, a one week, two week maybe of analog, I think most people are able to withstand uh, this period of time. That said, they definitely have sexual responses, uh, especially during these times, their sexual arousal, the excitement as well of the beginning of these missions, uh, collaborating with new people, um, the sexual response and attractiveness component with uh, their partner who share common values and common uh, shared a, a spirit of adventure and discovery and exploration. It creates bond. It, it generally creates bonds uh, quite rapidly. So we want to experience that, that good side and study that good side of things. Um, but uh, when we think about okay negative impacts of these uh, these environment or detrimental effects of uh, ice, ice environment isolated confinement and extreme um, sometimes we certain people react to it I think quite rapidly but what previous studies have shown on psychological it take it takes more time uh, I would say around a month you start to see some effects probably. Um, around cortisol and other uh, biomarkers of stress, uh, definitely after six months. It's all, it's actually often the midway point, depending on a mission of eight to 12 months. Um, around six months, uh, people start to disorganize uh, much more. So I would expect that uh, the same psychological effects you would see also partly affecting uh, in a bi-directional manner, sexual responses and sexual health. But um, that being said, we'll have to start with smaller analog missions (laughs) uh, because funding and doing with multiple uh, astronauts and multiple crews because you need a big enough sample to to draw these conclusions. For long duration, it's going to take time. And like I said, we're outsiders uh, trying to get this research not only funded, but developing the right partnerships with space agencies. So we are going to, we're starting small, uh, but we are a growing network of researchers uh, interested in these questions. And I think uh, we've seen, for example, uh, more interest, I think, for NASA uh, in 2020. 
Two, for the first time, they said, look, if we identify that reproduction in space or reproductive health in space is um, a problem or an issue, we're going to invest the necessary resources into studying it. Um, I think after some of their papers and what's coming up in the coming years, it's going to be difficult to say that it's not an issue. Um, and we've already seen, I think they're kind of doing it in, in some ways because ESA uh, published some of, I think it's kind of a series of white paper, and then it was summarized in the scientific publication about reproduction in space. So they're kind of touching on the subject, but now we need to get down to the relational uh, level and uh, the, these analog missions. So I hope that kind of answers your question. But right now, we want to we want to look at what's the uh, the roadmap of mission that's coming up in the coming years to, to the moon, to Mars, to these things and and, and tourism uh, effect and say, here are the time that people spend in space. Here are the kind of habitats that they start in space. We need to replicate that and pinpoint where uh, where people struggle, where people fare well, what kind of measures uh, or kind of um, countermeasures to be more specific can help. For example, if you say to people, well, for the next three weeks or for the next month, uh, you're going to have to abstain yourself from any sexual activities, in including masturbation. Uh, fine, the person can say, yes, I'm doing it. And then how does this, this affect people? But then we want to see, look, here's a crew who actually were able to masturbate. And maybe they masturbated two or three times. Maybe they, some people, it was two or three times a week. Others was once during the month. We want to see if that actually alleviates some of, uh, of the burden. So it's not just about establishing what are the issues and, and relationship between uh, mental health, sexual health, crew performance. It's also, can we just like accept or, or enable people to do these things and put in place good procedures and, and technical support for people to, in, to express their eroticism? And does that actually prevent any problem from arising? So these are the, the kind of logical steps that we're taking to, to conduct the, the these kinds of research. Yeah. And, and I'm going to come back to sort of the last thing you said there, sort of like almost like a, a briefing for people um, before they go on a mission, um, especially in the tourist con um, context. But just coming back to, to the analog mission. So, I mean, I, I think we've been talking basically um, mostly about um, analog astronaut missions, right? And, and those are well known. But sort of thing, I mean, a lot of the elements we're trying to, you're trying to research here, it's basically about sort of like um, long-term confined situations and potentially being abstinent, but are there not any other sort of like precedents on Earth? Like, for example, we've had, I think for many years, people spending like crew spending the Antarctic winter, like hold up at relatively small research camps. Is there anything, I don't know, any studies from there, any knowledge we have from, from these types of situations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's coming out more and more, uh, what is happening in these, uh, these station and it's not pretty, uh, it, it okay. is encouraging, uh, not only uh, the levels of depression, after like after the, the midway point, the level of anxiety. But there's a recent USAP report about some of the Antarctic missions that came out. That was studies conducted by a third party, but commissioned by the National uh, Science Foundation that shows the levels of sexual harassment and sexual assault in these Antarctic missions is in it's it's unprecedented. 72% of uh, of women said they've been uh, sexually harassed during their mission, uh, or they say that it's a problem in these uh, these environments. Sorry, and. 40, I think around 40% said that sexual assault is a problem during these missions. They've not necessarily said that they've been, but some, some of these survivors have talked and been interviewed and say 
it's well known that people get that women get sexually uh, harassed or even assaulted on these missions. How can we accept that? These are scientific missions and and these things. And to me, it's 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 a kind of prime example of there's a huge blind spot. Uh, there's a, a blind spot in the way we teach people to to go there. How the kind of etiquette, the kind of systems in place that uh, when you're in a small group, you don't have a lot of recourse. Like maybe your superior is someone you depend on. Uh, how do you report problems? If you have to abort a mission, how do you do that? How do you uh, get out of a situation? How do you make sure that people are safe? These problems that we're seeing on Earth, we're going to see in space. And it, yes, some of our research and most of our research focuses on more or less long duration space flight. But cases of gender and sexual based harassment... Uh, they they happen not just on long duration space flight. They they could happen on on a much shorter uh, mission or uh, space flight in general, whether that's for tourism or scientific missions. We still need to consider that uh, we have data, like you said, of what's going on on Earth. Not enough, uh, in my opinion, really not enough. But uh, we have already some indication that there's a problem. There's many problems. Um, and one of them that I, I really want to stress uh, to space agencies and but also Jenny scientific organizations uh, is that this is the what we see um, in our daily life also is exacerbated. Uh, sometimes uh, in, in these extreme conditions. And if we don't do uh, anything about it now, it's going to hurt people, but it's also going to, if you want to think again about like a very business, uh, ethical or legal way, you're going to get sued. You're going to be held liable eventually or responsible for uh, the these nightmares. So uh, why not just kind of address it uh, uh, for, from the get-go? It's, um, it's, it's, it's difficult like to say how many problems there are. One way that I try to explain it at conferences or during interviews is that take all the issues that we have with our intimacy and sexuality on Earth, multiply it by the conditions of living in space, and then multiply this by time. And then you get an idea of the magnitude of the problem. And in relation to what's going on in Artentica, there's in scientific missions, it's not just that there's cases of uh, sexual harassment or sexual assault. We also see uh, women giving birth a few months after coming back from uh, these missions. And they've been there for many months. Like, there's, it's yeah. pretty clear that some stuff happened. Um, I hopefully it was consensual and based on, uh, I don't know, desire to have children or love or uh, whatever the reason they, they might have, uh, that's fine. But something's going on. And there's no reason to suspect that this will not be somewhat similar in space context. Yeah. So Antarctica was was one sort of parallel that's come to my mind. The other one, which is even more sinister, but again, I can see some parallels is sort of like um, uh, prison inmates on Earth. Yeah. And, and that, of course, also has, uh, I guess, very high rate of uh, harassment and uh, and things like that. I don't know if there have been studies um yeah, prison, uh, obviously, it's a different context. I, I, I think it's a, it's a very, it's a good way of uh, asking these questions. But at the same time, you're also there's very specific realities to prison, which I, so I tend to not use them as an analogy um, because of putting together in a very specific kind of unhealthy environment that is not really designed to favor their needs, but actually restrain their rights and restrain their access to a limited number. People with a lot of people who have psychological problems, uh, criminal past, antisocial behaviors, antisocial personality, psychopathic personality. And then you're putting all of these people uh, in a small environment, a great number. 
you, I don't know what people are expecting, the, uh, how this is going to happen, but I, I like to draw a con comparison with Antarctica and submarines. We also have many mm -hmm. cases uh, in the military of cases of uh, sexual harassment. We have also cases of more positive uh, things in submarines and way of, of living that there's an, it, not a formal, but informal rules and some etiquettes, some sexual etiquettes in military and submarines. We have indication that, for example, the use of pornography, some sex toys, some stimulation in submarines and is accepted and <laughs> not not uh, formally and I, I don't know if many military or personnel would confirm what I'm saying here but we have indication that they've kind of developed uh some systems of yeah we have sexual needs we're here together for long periods of times so there's ways to express your sexuality in a healthy way in your uh, your living quarters um I think we can learn a lot from that for uh, for space endeavors but we also need, again, to address the problem because sexual harassment and gender-based harassments and cases of anti-LGBTQ movements in the military and is extremely prevalent. So, yeah. That's actually that's actually interesting. I haven't thought about this, to be honest. But submarines, that strikes me as very interesting because if we go to, if we hopefully some point in time in the next few decades, we get to these like interplanetary type missions that uh, Elon Musk has in mind that probably be like a similar crew size, similar space and all of that. So... That's quite that's quite interesting. By the way, in um, apart from the sort of the missions you've described and the research you've described, if you had sort of unlimited funding, what would be your ideal sort of like dream study? My dream study uh, would probably have something to do with, um, I mean, uh, studying this process while we're going to to Mars and, and uh, doing kind of a multi-site study of multiple ships uh, with people on Earth, with people in space, with people on in base, uh, then establishing a full settlement and seeing it, it would be a multi-year um, uh, generational study of how can we uh, adapt in our sexuality and practices and develop trainings uh, based on that knowledge and try to train astronauts to anticipate that. It would be very comprehensive, but a more realistic, uh, if I had uh, access to fun, I would probably uh, built my own um, my own analog uh, stations. I would try to connect it with the world's biggest analog and try to see uh, what can we do with different crew size. So I would have like an analog environment where I can have more than four to eight uh, individuals. I would try to bring it maybe to thirty uh, sometimes and just or have multiple camps and really uh, really take. Uh, all the measures that we like to have here uh, in the psycho psychophysiology, uh, whether they're subjective arousal, their sexual history, and then when they watch porn or they are sexually uh, stimulated, we take their genital measurements, uh, then we allow them to have or not partnered sex, masturbation, and whatnot, and see, just compare the groups on our, uh, how how is their experience? Uh, uh, do they feel better about that? Does that improve their, their morale? Does that improve their crew creation? I would also look at um, crew dynamics, a lot of crew dynamics and power dynamics. That's what I'm really also quite worried about is you depend on each other. You really depend on each other. So if your commander is also your, your chief medical officer or your pilot, or he's just your commander, <laughs> you just need him like to lead, um, but you fall in love and then you, you break up or there's perceived conflict of interest. How does that affect uh, the crew, affect the individuals, uh, how people who or just attracted to each other and have sex uh, in, in these kinds of mission affect other people's perception. For example, um, maybe they accept uh, that two people have sex, but afterwards it's like, 
does someone have uh, some privilege? How do you maintain discipline? How do you maintain uh, cohesion uh, for, for mission's sake in these environments? I, I've been asked uh, a few times, like, what would you suggest? I, I think we need to train people uh, to, um, to talk about their sexual needs, to be respectful of the etiquette. But I also actually want to propose that we build these kinds of erotic friendships and an understanding of erotic friendships. So that crews in many ways are, are sexual friendly and sexual friends and sex positive. So you might want to be thinking about multi-partnered uh, erotic interactions and, and, and stuff like that, or, or take, take good advice from the consensual non-monogamy uh, um, community, uh, whether that's to allow, for example, oh, I'm married, I have a partner and children at home, but I have to go on a three-year mission. Uh, how do you talk to your partner about these things and to your crew members and how, what kind of permissive, <laughs> what do you accept in terms of partner sex, touch and intimacy and, and connection with others is so important to uh, our well-being. We need to, we need to kind of be mature about this, more mature and less conservative that, uh, that we are about that to enable something. So I would run studies with unlimited funding. I would run studies testing all of these aspects. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. If, so we've been talking about the, 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 the studies part, let's say let's cross over board into something that's called a prescriptive. Let's say, you know, one of the companies that's engaged in space tourism or you know, SpaceX or Axiom or Beat or somebody like that, you know, basically wants to take people up to you on, on, on capsules or even space stations in the future. They call you and they're like, Simon, we got a group of people here. They're going to go up to space. Um, it's a couple of married couples here. Um, we, we need some sort of like intimacy or whatever you want to call it, briefing. Oh, yeah. what, what do you think? What do you think maybe some of the e-messages you would give them? <laughs> uh, the key messages, uh, sexual communication is key. Uh, respect of uh, each other's needs is key. Um, hygiene and maintaining a viable habitat <laughs> is key. I, 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 that, that's what I would say to the, the clients, but I would say to the space organization, yeah, get ready for some solitary or partnered sex. So just provide them with the right tools to uh, maintain a viable habitat, depending on how how your capsule or whatever you're sending is is structured. The space architecture component is actually really important. And uh, um, how how do you maintain privacy, uh, hygiene, um, and um, aside from that, uh, what, my last question is always, what do you do if it's a problem? And I'm taking it two kinds of problems. What what do you do if someone gets hurt? What do you do if uh, if there's a problem of sexual harassment? How do you deal with that? Are you just going to take the the problematic perpetrator and just isolate them from the other and then bring it back to her? Like, how do you, how are you going to deal with that? What's your game plan? Uh, if someone says, um, yeah, if someone gets raped or if someone removes consent in, in, the, in the sexual interaction, or if someone for some reason does something weird in microgravity and I don't know, like breaks his penis or, uh, or just um, as genital pain or bangs their head on the, on, on whatever, like, what are you going to do if a problem uh, arises? And I want you to have a clear game plan. And to be fair, space organizations are super risk averse. They are super risk averse. And that's why I think they, they fear sex because they feel like sex is something chaotic that cannot be controlled and there's problems going to be arise. But I'm there to tell you, there are plenty of solutions. We can address it, but just we need to bring the experts. And I would say also bring more experts than me. <laughs> there's plenty of people who are sex coach, psychotherapists, sexologists, uh, sex therapists, name it, gynecologists, uh, obstetrician. There's plenty of people, I would also say, um, 
especially at this stage, make sure that uh, women and female are on contraci contraceptive. Um, because one thing that's going to happen, eventually someone in, somewhere in the nation, they'll want to be to have the first baby conceived in space, not just for the yeah. pride of men, but uh, plenty of other reasons. Maybe just want a celebrity or the first. We need, we need to address the, the reproductive component, but in the meantime, we're not there yet. So I would just say sexual health is key. <laughs> everyone's tested, everyone's great. And if there make sure that there's contingency place, uh, contingency contingency plan in place. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get back to the reproduction in a minute because I, I think that's just such an important question. But the other question I want to ask before that is, which you've mentioned uh, maybe 20, 30 minutes ago already, is sort of like the more mechanical part, right? Sort of like, you know, how much work has been done on sort of like, you know, how can good sexual activity be had just mechanically in terms of having you know we, we're having like obviously specialized sports equipment already on the space stations right i assume there would be, have to be sort of like similar types of uh, adaptations of you know sleeping quarters or some some other equipment and i guess that's where you started you, st you mentioned you started sort of like more on the sex tech side so to what extent are people already working on things um like that yeah um it, it's really a, a good question living in space requires technology <laughs> so so why not also apply the same logic to our, our sexuality and you said sports equipment you're absolutely right and living quarters i'm glad you mentioned it because i know people who live in space for those who might not know they're kind of in little quarters with sleeping bags and whatnot these sleeping bags you know is it's already pretty good to to keep people close if we're thinking about partnered sexual activities it's also pretty good for solitary partnered sex uh, it it is uh, quite confined it's it's cleanable. It's it's uh, it's relatively easy to maintain. Uh, it's not like your bed sheet at home, maybe, but because much more complicated. But at the same time, it's already pretty cozy and pretty well organized. But it, of course, you would you could think of other uh, more um, efficient garments and um, straps and contraptions and maybe piece of clothes. To that Vanabanta suit is the the very famous example. They've tried and testing it in um, parabolic. Um, flights to see if it, if they were able to stay together and they were to some extent uh, i just want to be clear that the test that they've done in parabolic flight is already pretty difficult <laughs> to do the whole process in 30 seconds within the these uh, these segues so actually i i thought their solution was pretty elegant and good it's just that it's difficult to show that it works because they don't have a lot of time to to, to make it work like uh, if they were on the space station and have uh, all the time in the world and in, in, in well in total weightlessness um there's not a lot of people who are working on these um, these realities. Um, there are people that I know that are working and asking questions to us on the space architecture front. I think that's quite important and interesting. Uh, I've been told that people who were interns at NASA um, they were system engineers and they were they wanted to propose some some technology for that and their advisor just said no you cannot study that this is not going to fly uh don't do this you'll just get ridiculed and nothing is going to get funded but that was a few years ago i hope uh, it changed i think one clever way that nasa and, and any other people could go about it if they don't want to say oh it's for sex uh it's uh, they want to have they don't want to have anything to do because they don't want to say to congress oh we've been thinking uh uh, about this, we're using taxpayers' dollars or investors' uh, money to to fund sex, uh, which, in my opinion, is ridiculous. You sh I mean, it's a huge market, and you should. There's a need uh, for that. But if that's your your stance, I, uh, I I completely understand it. What I think is is clear is that you can say that it's for many other stuff. 
oh, the, the sleeping bag there for sleep, obviously, uh, or these living quarters there for, oh, we need to have a private uh, environment. But then you take into account the possibility that partnered or solitary sex would arrive in the design without necessarily um, mentioning it. But I think if you don't, you're just gunning for problems uh, in the future and people getting hurt or getting, or just making the uh, the environment less habitable or less viable. I think I think people in space agencies are some of the smartest people on earth. They're quite aware uh, of these, uh, these realities. Sometimes they just don't say it out loud. Um, but um, we have good indication from people working in these that they are somewhat aware or when they're aware that there's a problem, they're kind of asking the right people. Um, the question, for example, on the design of a room or the design of an habitat, so they're taking that into consideration. I just wish it was not that taboo and stigmatized. I just wish it was in the open that we're sexual being. Everyone on here on Earth is the results of a reproductive cycle or some form of sexuality and intimacy. And this is not going to change in space. So why not just acknowledge it out loud? Yeah, absolutely agree. And you know, if if the space agencies will keep it taboo for a longer time, um, I agree with something you you said earlier, which is um, just the private space tourism industry i mean it's just no way you can ignore that because there's going to be couples increasingly going to space but so the other thing we've been indirectly touching upon a few times now um i want to ask you about which frankly for me is the question and frankly actually one of the most important questions in all space explorations like we're we're talking a lot about making well, some of us, including prominent people like Elon, are talking a lot about making life multiplanetary or expanding to other places. And and I feel the question that gets almost no airtime and seems to be largely ignored is like, well, how much do we know about having babies under non-1G normal gravity conditions? Uh, because for me, it's like, for me, there is no more human activity than reproducing, right? And it's like, I don't see humanity wanting to live in other places if you can't have families. So in many ways for me, and people can disagree with this, this is this may be the most important question in all of sort of like human space exploration. And I haven't seen a lot of research done, answers, conclusions. What are you seeing? Yeah, you're you're asking also the, the absolutely right question. Um, and just before we get into the nitty-gritty of what's uh, what kind of research is being done, um, there's a person, his name was Michael Lane a few years ago. He said, um, reproduction in space is the way we're going to become independent from Earth. So there's no space exploration without reproduction. Otherwise, we're just going to stay confined to where we are right now. To be fully autonomous in space, we need to figure out how to have multi-generational reproduction outside of Earth and outside of our solar system. So that's the magnitude of the challenge that we're dealing uh, here. Space exploration is dependent on humanity figuring out how to reproduce in outer space. So it is actually the, the area that is most studied partly because uh, of the magnitude of the problem. Secondly, because uh, you can do a lot of it with human, uh, non-human models, with animals, basically. So um, since actually in the 60s, there's been many studies using uh, rats, using uh, reptiles, using fish, using... Uh, so actually sex in space happened in space, but <laughs> with non-human animals, uh, with quails, with birds, na name it, with geckos, <laughs> and a lot of mice. A lot of mice. Um, that said, there's not been yet uh, full cycles of reproduction in space, uh, multi-generational. What we often do is either they reproduce 
here on Earth, or we take samples of sperms and ovas, and then we send it into space or use simulators on Earth to see how microgravity or radiation doses affect um, the, the gametes and the, and the cells, or when we implant them in fertile females, then does that lead to healthy, uh, healthy pups, healthy generations? Uh, or other questions that we've been asking and studying and great studies by Wakayama and, and their team over the past few years, they've, they were able to store um, frozen sperm for long periods of time, uh, almost the equivalent of five years uh, without any DNA damage. And they were able to produce viable offspring afterwards on Earth. We were able to store them on the International Space Station. So, so there is actually a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a significant amount of research on reproduction uh, in space, whether that's actually in space or in simulation environment here on Earth. The main questions and main findings that we're uh, finding and that, if you want to know, dear listeners, just read our uh, five-year scoping review on uh, sexual health in space that's coming up recently, uh, not the next one or two weeks uh, in current sexual health report, it summarizes all of that research uh, of the past five years exactly on these questions. Um, what we know is that, okay, <laughs> reproduction and microgravity, it's a problem. <laughs> it is really a problem. Uh, radiation obviously uh, causes all kinds of DNA damage, which trickles down afterwards to cancer, uh, developmental anomalies, uh, problems. Microgravity tends to uh, affect also um, blood flow. It tends to affect uh, also how the um, the gametes whatever, navigate. It seems to be possible to reproduce under microgravity and the implementation of embryo seems to function, uh, but the full development afterwards seems to require a standard 1G. Uh, we and all the other species that exist on Earth have evolved under very specific conditions, so we're adapted to that. The kind of condition uh, that we have in space is we, have to, we really have to shield from radiation and we have to ideally for humans, especially eventually for human development, we need probably to simulate uh, one uh, one G gravity or some form of artificial gravity. Uh, we have indication that reduced gravity seems not to be such a problem. For example, maybe even Mars or Mars type of gravity might be okay. Uh, but again, we have very, very, very little information compared to, for example, compared to our capability to navigate or build vehicles in space and viable habitats. We've lived we've invested much, much less into uh, human factors and especially reproduction. So um, at this stage, I, I think everyone kind of needs a wake-up call uh, of this is happening. We're going into space. We're sending more and more people that are not necessarily trained. And eventually there might be some people who want to reproduce or and we have to on a long period of time. Uh, but even before that, there might be cases of we want to make sure that radiation doesn't affect um, people's gametes, yeah, people's sperms, people's ability to reproduce on Earth. Um, for example, yeah, uh, for now, we have really good reasons to think that short stays, a few days, or not, no problem. Uh, in the future, if we find other studies, I want to say to do it, don't hold me to that, <laughs> that statement. We might discover that it creates other problem. I acknowledge that. It's, I'm really talking about our state of knowledge right now. For small duration, it seems to be okay for long duration there's an increased risk when we're talking about two or three year missions to mars i i really don't know but um, it'll definitely need good radiation shielding at baseline good equipment and um, a space company like spacex good entrances 
good legal contract uh, with uh, your astronauts because uh, and they need to be aware they, they need to have informed consent like this presents a risk for uh, my future uh, reproductive possibilities maybe they'll decide we're, we're, we're going to try to send people who've already had their children or have frozen sperm and ovas and and they've frozen their gametes or, or whatnot and cells make sure that they can reproduce in the future I think that would be a smart way of going about it if they think they might want to have children uh, um, for women, uh, the risks are also quite unknown, but there's plenty of evidence that it is going to get problematic and that in many ways, uh, female might be more sensitive to uh, the female reproductive system, seems to be more uh, sensitive in certain area, much more complex in many ways than the male uh, system. So we need to also acknowledge these uh, these realities and the fact that in our species, a female are the ones who are carrying uh, children. So that also has plenty of other uh, ethical and social impacts. So, uh, so it seems like a lot of a lot of work left to be done yeah. on this important question. A lot, a lot of PhD thesis is uh, still up uh, for grabs. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. If you're a PhD student and you're wondering what kind of research you want to be doing in the space sector, there's a huge field of space exology that is untapped. So Blue ocean market, jump on it. The uh, right now, reproduction is and the impact of the effects of space environment is the most studied. But even in that most studied area, we've barely scratched the surface. Understood. Simon, we're, as we're sort of winding down here on the on the podcast, the last question we we traditionally always ask on every episode is. Um, on science fiction and sort of your favorite science fiction. But since we're talking about this very specific topic, uh, if you want, you could also sort of like uh, take out, um, you know, the depictions of sex in space that uh, spring to mind after trying to think about it. And I, stuff that came to my mind is um, I think uh, in, in Red Mars, Kim Stanley Robinson on, on the way on the way to Mars, uh, there's some sex going on. I think in uh, Werner, Vernon Wingy's uh, novels, uh, they have some sex in microgravity and it's, 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 it's basically a mess of, uh, but yeah, what is some of your favorite science fiction? And uh, if you want to I'm highlight the, the, the sex parts, then feel free. Yeah, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is The Expanse. Uh, mm. I think that's yes. a good show. I think there's a few sex scenes as well. But what actually also comes to mind when I think about The Expanse is also there's a few crews that seem to have a very uh, positive sex ethics and kind of are in love or in an erotic relationship with one another. I thought that was quite interesting and uh, maybe a kind of consensual non-monogamy uh, style of relationship that might be warranted more exploration. But um, aside from that... Um... <laughs> I mean, recently, just for a conference at South by Southwest, we had just tallied how many uh, relationships, I think Captain Kirk or something, uh, William Shatner's, uh, uh, in terms of relationships uh, in space. So it was not like scenes of sex, but he had dozens of, of partners uh, in space over the course of uh, the captain's career in Star Trek. And it just... It just kind of brings to mind that, look, we've been thinking about this for so long. One of the first, it's very strange as a species that one of the first and most primal important aspect of our life is sex, but it always ends up being the last that we study, the last that we address. And um, fortunately, and fortunately and unfortunately, 
when we actually do, usually it creates innovation, it creates social innovation, it creates new ideas, it creates new frameworks and way of thinking. I think, um, so I think actually, if sometimes we invested more in thinking about our sexual and intimate relationship, we would uncover many other form of social dynamics uh, and, and ways of going about it to address in complex environments. So um, just circling back to the science fiction, there's there's just so many sex scenes uh, in, in space. And we've been thinking about this for quite a bit of time. Uh, so why not just now really address it now that uh, science is reaching back to fiction nowadays? Totally agreed. Simon, thank you so much for coming on again. I think the work that, that you and, 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 and all the others that you mentioned at the very beginning are doing is, is, is super important and it's absolutely crucial to us, you know, expanding humanity into space. So thanks for coming on and talking about it. And we'll link to some of your articles in, in the episode notes. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.